You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you would like to use one of those church Bibles in a seat underneath you somewhere, and I think we're getting some more of those, so if you're having a hard time finding one, look around. You should be able to find one. That's going to be on page 1004. While you're going there, I just want to let our guests know, and I've met a few guests. Of all the mornings to have guests, the snowy morning when everybody else is sliding off the road into a ditch on the freeway is when all the guests show up. Um, That says something, I think. I'm not sure what it says, but we're glad you're here. We've been going through the book of Romans. We are coming to the end of chapter 9, and then we're going to hit pause for just a few weeks. We have a uh, Palm Sunday sermon coming next week, and I know many of you are surprised by that because you know I have this weird aversion to little kids with palms, Palm Sunday, all that stuff. I'm going to explain that next week, and we're going to walk through uh, something maybe uh, we need to see in Scripture regarding the king coming to town. And then we have Easter. Praise the Lord, Easter, yay, right? And then we're going to go into a four-week series through the book of Jude. The series is called Contend for Your Faith. I, everybody's throwing a fit already because the scripture says contend for the faith, but we're, we're titling that a little bit specific to contend for your faith. But for today, we get to round out uh, the hardest chapter in all of the Bible, Romans chapter 9. So let's go ahead and turn our attention now to God's word, and let's see what he has for us this morning. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33 say, What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved righteous, the righteousness of the law. Sorry. Oh, that's a lot better. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at what you have here in your word, as we look to the righteousness of your law, as we look to faith, as we look to what this stumbling stone is, God, it's my humble request that you would illuminate this brightly, that we would see it, that we would understand it. Help me to preach it well, and Lord, let it sink in deep into our souls, that it would change our lives, that it would teach us, that it would show us, that it would guide us. Lord, I think we have much to learn from Paul and his concerns for his uh, fellow Israelite brothers and sisters, and Lord, there's much to learn even in our context today. So we know this is your inspired word and that you have something for us. So Lord, please speak to us abundantly, richly, clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Um, So last week... We read that God will show mercy on whom he shows mercy. That's verse 15. We saw that God saves who God saves. And then we learned that it's not just this unjust thing, but instead it's this beautiful picture of grace. God said he will call the people who are called not my people, my people. He 
He's renaming them and, and claiming them for his own. We saw that he will uh, take those who are called unloved and call them beloved. And this is all based on who God shows mercy to. God is sovereign over everything. But, but all of this, as we're talking through it, is part of what Paul has been sharing about his agony over the lostness of the Israelites. That's the context in which Romans 9 exists. See, they were, they were rejecting Jesus as the promised and coming Messiah. And many Jewish people to this day still reject Jesus as the promised coming Messiah. Now, let's not be too hard on them. Many Gentiles also reject Jesus as the promised coming Messiah. Right? And then in verse 30 that we just read, it, uh, it seems to address the most obvious rebuttal, rejection, the pushback that Paul would get to what he is saying. It goes something like this. Wait a minute. If God does the choosing... Regardless of what we can do, if, if we can't earn all this, then what's the deal with all this law stuff? Why are we doing all this law stuff? I mean, isn't it God who gave us the law? Isn't it God who gave us all this stuff that we're supposed to be doing? I mean, come on, Paul. Come on. You're telling me we're not supposed to find our salvation in this? You're telling me that, that these people who aren't doing all this stuff, are going to be saved? Give me a break. I'm over here working my tail off. You're telling me there's not righteousness at the end of all these works? And now, Paul, you're telling me the Gentiles, who for generations haven't been a part of what we've been doing, and they don't have the temple, and they don't have the law, and they don't have all this stuff, and they're not working at all this. Now, Paul, you're going to tell me that God is going to save them? What do you... Give me a... What, what is this? I, I think that's the... The objection, right? And that's not an unreasonable complaint. Is it not? Do we, do we not feel that stirring up sometimes in us? Right? The Israelites in Paul's day were zealous about the work and about keeping the law. They were all about it. Luke 11.4 gives us an example. Jesus is talking to them and he shows that they, they tithed on their mint and their rue and every kind of herb. That's some serious tithing. Figure out a, a giving portion of your first fruits from your, your herb garden, your little window. I bet nobody put herb, mint, or anything else like that in the offering this morning. They were serious. Right? In Acts uh, 10, verse 14, Peter is boasting. Peter's really a boastful guy a lot, but he's boasting back to God that he has never eaten anything unclear or excuse me, unclean or impure. He's never violated the food laws. And God's saying, it's okay. You can eat bacon now. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Even before Paul's conversion, Paul was a serious Israelite. He was serious about this stuff. He was, he was working hard. He says in Philippians 3, 5 and 6, he says, uh, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, he was a Pharisee, like the top echelon, the A-team of law keepers. Regarding zeal, he persecuted the church. He's like, you can't get more zealous than that. And regarding the righteousness that is the law, he was blameless. 
He was a serious Israelite, hardcore, to the extreme. But as you know, he considered none of that of any value compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, his Lord. That's Philippians 3, 7, and 8. So the, the Israelites over time or, or somehow had come to this idea that their salvation hinged on how well they obeyed the law and how well they, they kept it and, and how righteous they were. And frankly, many Jewish people still believe this to the day. And they, today they've added more laws and more things. You can Google and see all kinds of things and how they're working so diligently to keep this law Perfectly. I know I've told the story before, but I'll tell it again. I used to work at the Salt Palace downtown, the big convention center, and, and it was all hands on deck. If we had certain groups that would come through that had a lot of practicing Jewish people, we would have to go. If their conference was going to meet on Saturday, the Sabbath, we would have to go and, and take care of a lot of things they weren't allowed to do, to include pulling out a certain strip of toilet paper, cutting it, laying it on top of the dispenser because it was too much work to ripped the toilet paper, it broke the law, and they weren't going to do it. There are some people that are serious about keeping these laws. They're not going to work on the Sabbath. I don't, they're at a conference, but they're not going to rip the toilet paper. Um, but we're not too far off sometimes, are we? Don't we sometimes create our own rules? Don't we sometimes miss the understanding of the New Testament grace that we get from Jesus Christ. As Christians, we struggle with this. Sometimes I, I talk with some of us in here. We start chatting, and suddenly I learn that maybe, maybe it's just a misunderstanding, maybe it's just confusion. We come to a conclusion that you got saved in the Old Testament a different way than you get saved in the New Testament. You got saved, we think, in the Old Testament by keeping the law, by making the sacrifice, and that's, that's how you're going to get saved, by doing all that. And if you think that, you're not alone. It's okay. Some very prominent Christians uh, have put that down in writing. There was a theologian of a wildly popular study Bible in the early 20th century. His name is Cyrus Schofield, and he wrote this in his study Bible. He said, "'Grace begins with the death and resurrection of Christ.'" The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the consideration of salvation. Hear that? No longer legal obedience as the consideration of salvation, but acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. This guy understood salvation in the Old Testament differently than salvation in the New Testament. Another uh, very prominent theologian named Louis Schaefer, a 20th century guy, he was the first president of Dallas Theological Seminary, smart guy. Right? He wrote this in his volume of Systematic Theology. Quote, A distinction must be observed here, a distinction must be observed here between just men of the Old Testament and those justified according to the New Testament. Here's what he says. According to the Old Testament, men were just, or you could say saved, because they were true and faithful in keeping the Mosaic law. Men were therefore just because of their own works for God, whereas New Testament justification is God's works for man in the answer to faith. We have lots of Christians who struggle with this. 
Lots of Jewish people who struggle with this. This idea of keeping the, the law, working, striving. We live in a community of people who are working and striving and, and toiling away for their salvation. If I just keep these rules perfectly. But now, right here, what we just read, we have the Apostle Paul in the inspired word of God telling us something differently, don't we? He's saying something different. He said in Romans 1.17 that the righteous will live by faith. That's really the, the heart, the meat and potatoes of the book of Romans. The righteous will live by faith. But this wasn't new to Paul. This isn't even a concept that's reserved for the New Testament. Paul was appealing to the Old Testament by quoting Habakkuk 2.4. That wasn't foreign to these guys. Surely these guys read Habakkuk, right? Or maybe I shouldn't assume that. Because, I mean, how many of us in the room have read Habakkuk? Maybe there's some of us in here who haven't read Habakkuk. I mean, it's not like one of the top books on the My Favorite Books of the Bible list, right? But if you read Habakkuk, there it is in Habakkuk 2.4. The same claim that Paul is making throughout all of the book of Romans. It's not foreign. It's not different. In any case, in all of this, Paul's heart is broken. Paul is sorrowful for his fellow Israelites, because they're not obtaining the righteousness of the law. That means they're not saved. They're not hitting the mark they're shooting for. And why haven't they hit the mark? Well, that's what he's talking about in what we just read, 30 through 33. So let's go ahead and let's take a look. I want to read 31 again through the end, because it answers the question I just asked. But Israel... Pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. And then I love that he's just helping us out. Why is that? If you weren't thinking that was the question, that's the question. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Look, I'm putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So it's right there. When you're having a conversation with others, it's right here in verse 32. The righteousness of the law could not, it cannot be achieved by works. We are saved by faith alone. It didn't come by keeping the law. Their own works wouldn't do it. And let's, let's extrapolate this out a little bit. Their own works, what are we talking about? Yeah, the tithing on the mint and the herbs, but what about all the stuff in the, in the temple sacrifices? What about all the pilgrimage stuff? What about all that stuff? That means the stuff they were doing in the temple, while it has value, don't get me wrong, the way they were approaching it could not save them. The tangible, actual sacrifices were not the saving power that would save them. And so they're just toiling and striving and trying to keep this up, right? Instead, it says they're supposed to pursue this by faith because the righteous will live by faith. Right? The righteous will live by faith. So along comes these Gentiles who are not my people. And then God makes them my people. These are the Gentiles who are unloved, and then God makes them loved. But they weren't pursuing the law at all. So you can imagine those who were, were like, that's not right. That's not right. But it seems 
that it is by faith, even under the law, they were saved in the Old Testament. So what's the purpose of the law? Like, why would you have that if you're just supposed to have faith? Well, well, here's why. The purpose of the law was there to show them that those things were not enough to save them. Wouldn't you feel that? Wouldn't you feel that if, if every time you had a major sin, you had to take one of your prized, valuable animals, or let's just say your car, right? And you had to go and smash it in a car smasher and destroy it for the sake of God. That's going to get real expensive real fast, right? Hopefully keeping you from sinning, but we still sin. And then we still have these various practices. And there's various things. Sometimes these accidental things would happen and sacrifices had to be made. Sometimes other things that you were unaware of, then you find out sacrifices had to be made. Sometimes you're making sacrifices to show how thankful and how grateful you are. And you're having all these meals and all this stuff. How many sheep and bulls and goats and doves do these people have? At some point you go, when is it going to be enough? Man, when is the promised Messiah, the end of all this coming to fix all this? Under the law, wouldn't you just start to go, man, when, when is that big veil no longer going to be necessary there in the temple that separates God from man? When, when is all this going to end? Oh, I hope the promised Messiah comes soon. Oh, I can't do it. You see how the law should be pointing them to something better than the law. Now, the law should also do something else. The law should point us to the lawgiver. Because in the giving of the law and the giving of the Torah and all those first five books and all the Psalms and all the things God was doing, what was he doing? He was showing us his attributes. He was showing us his love. He was showing us who he was and how he's drawing people to him. And so all of that should be saying, this is who I am so that you can see me and know me and know the lawgiver. It's not about the law. It's about the giver of the law. And this was supposed to be the purpose of the law. But in our own sinful, natural heart, they did what we do. I'm going to make a checklist. I'm going to make sure it's good. I mean, I know some of you in here are like, man, this is bad weather outside, but I got a checkbox. If I miss church, I'm not going to be holy. So I'm going to check. I'm really glad you're here. But the fact that you came here isn't what saves you. Jesus Christ on the cross, dying in your place is what saves you. Right? Now, still come here because that's how we learn about God. That's how we worship God. That's how we love our brothers and sisters. That's how we do all the one another's in the New Testament and faithfully serve and walk with him and learn and grow, be sanctified. But it's not what saves us. Just like following the law perfectly isn't what saved them. And then Paul goes to this um, really fascinating illustration, this stumbling stone illustration. So kids, I'm going to need your help for just a minute. Because I don't know. I mean, I think the kids can help me get this. I was talking with Lydia last night about this. Um, you know, we were talking about this big stumbling stone. I want you to imagine, kiddos. Actually, first of all, how many of you have ever gone to a parade or a fireworks show and it's really crowded? There's a lot of people and everybody's walking the same way. And you're holding your parent's hand or your grandparents and you can't see anything because you're short, right? And everybody's taller than you and you don't know where you're going, but you're just trusting and here we go. Imagine a really crowded pathway, really big crowded road. I saw Grandma over here shaking her head because she can't see over all the heads. I I know, that's just what happens, right? (laughs) They're walking along and everybody's, it's just crowded, it's busy, it's a giant path and it's just packed full. What would have happened if there was just a big block, a rock, a square box, you know, yay high, right in the middle of the path? 
Well, some of us could go, man, I'm tired. This is a good thing to, to rest on. I'm going to pause. I'm going to take a rest. I'm going to sit on this. This is great. But what about all the people who don't see it? They're trying to see everybody's head. They hit that rock, down on their faces. Right? They're tripping over the rock, and they're, they're struggling. Some are finding rest. Some are finding a bloody nose. Right? What distinguishes between the two? I suppose the ability to see it. So Paul uses this illustration, this stumbling stone illustration, but he didn't come up with it. This wasn't his illustration. He's just borrowing from the Old Testament. He takes Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16, and he puts these two things together. It's half the thing and the other half. This is how he comes up with this statement, and he's trying to tell his readers there's a whole lot going on in those two passages, and the context of those two passages is the same as the context I'm talking here. It's not different. It's the same. we got to see it. Let me read what Paul's put together again. Verse 33, he says, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Whoa. The stumbling block is Christ? There are people who say, no, 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 no. That's just if you believe in God, you're not going to... That's something else. You're tripping over the... You're tripping over something else. Or some people will say, no, it's not Christ, but it's God in general because the Jewish people in the Old Testament loved God, and that's the Old Testament. And Isaiah's talking about God. It can't possibly be about Jesus, right? What could that be? But I'm going to argue that it is about Jesus. It is about the Messiah, and here's why. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 23 and 24 to you. We preach Christ crucified. Christ on the cross. Christ crucified. That's our message. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, that'd be the same as Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom for God. Christ is this stumbling block. Him crucified, being raised from the dead. I mean, if you look at it and you're, you're, you're looking, you go, that is crazy. This hero killed on a terrorist's cross, a, a punishment unthinkable to Jewish people and cursed? How could that be? It's a stumbling block. Others look and go, I see. He died in my place. That was for me. Salvation. Just a little before the verses I just read. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. You see the difference? Those who have eyes to see, see the block. They rest on the block. They stand on the block. We sang a song about building uh, our life, our beliefs on the rock of Jesus Christ, while others are falling over and being smashed to pieces. It's about having eyes to see and having ears to hear. And Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, was calling the Israelites to have faith in Jesus. Now, they didn't know Jesus was going to be his name necessarily, but they knew there was a coming and promised Messiah. And they were called to believe on the coming one. All the way back in the Old Testament, that's how they were saved. Right now, the, the Septuagint, 
Uh, a lot of times in your footnotes, it might say like Roman numeral LXX, 70. Uh, the Septuagint was the first translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It happened probably about 280 or 300 years before Paul wrote these words we just read. Right? They have a very interesting paraphrase. Now, some of you really get a little twitchy when you hear the word paraphrase, but sometimes we don't know quite how to get to the meaning of something. It's the best way to translate it. They they have a paraphrase of Isaiah 8.14 trying to explain the meaning to the Greek readers. Listen to how they wrote this out. This is how they say it. And if you believe on him, he shall be to you a sanctuary. And you shall not encounter him as a stone of stumbling or a rock of falling. Isn't that interesting? They understood this discussion about a sanctuary a temple, or a safe place. They say, if you do not believe, you're going to have to deal with this stumbling stone. But if you do believe, you have this sanctuary in which you can find rest. You see, the temple was not supposed to be their sanctuary. God himself was supposed to be their sanctuary. The temple was a means for them to learn and understand and encounter God But it itself was only a signpost pointing them to the Lord. This is why we should not be surprised at all that in A.D. 70 the temple was destroyed and 2,000 years later it has yet to be rebuilt. It is not the necessary sanctuary we are to look for. We are to look for God. And then Jesus himself said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he was talking about his body. That's John 2, 19 through 22, and I, I had to double-check this about 10 times. It is right. That was John 2, 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, says that we, as the believers, are being built together as the dwelling place and the temple of the living God, and that is to be where God will dwell in our sanctuary. And then if we carry that even forward, and if I were to ask you, what did John not see when he was shown the holy city in the new heavens and the new earth when it's all done and everybody's redeemed? What was not there? This is Revelation 21, 22. He says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The temple is the point to God. We find our salvation, our comfort, our security in redemption in God himself. Okay, so getting back to this Romans text now, with all that kind of in the background, kind of helping us to see. Paul quoted this part of Isaiah, and he, and he said, the one who believes will not be put to shame. Not the one who works, not the one who toils, not the one who does everything right, not the one who is imperfect or is perfect and has it all together, but the one who believes will not be put to shame. Now, what does he mean by that? A few verses later, he expands on it. We're going to come back to this after that Jude series, but if you go down to Romans 10, look at verses 9 through 13 with me. If you still have your Bible open, and I, and I hope you do, we're going to be in this some. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart... Okay, what are we going to believe? That God raised him, Jesus, from the dead. 
you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. He came back to that same quote. Verse 12, since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember what he's talking about, those who've rejected, those who struggle. And he's saying, no, no, no. This is how you do this. This is how you do this. This is how the Israelites were going to be saved. This is how the Jewish people today are saved. By the way, this is how we are saved. This is how all of us are saved. And how is that? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's not just a simple three-word statement you say. You're saying, I believe that he calls the shots. I'm not the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of my life. I'm not the Lord of my finances. He's the Lord of my finances. I'm not the Lord of my future. He's the Lord of my future. I'm not the Lord of my stuff. He's the Lord of my stuff. He calls all the shots in my life. I'm giving up the driver's seat completely as if I ever really had it. And I'm giving it to the Lord who's always been the Lord anyway. Now I'm just confessing that I realize who I am. So that confession is more than just a statement about Jesus. It's a statement about ourselves. By saying he is the Lord, we're saying we are not. And then it says, believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead which is about the most difficult, crazy, stumbling block for those people who look at the gospel and say, that doesn't even make sense. And yet, when you believe that he is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does, and he's the fulfillment of these promises, and he conquers death, even death, the last enemy, he does all that he says he does, and you've just said he will be the Lord. You believe that he is who he says he is, and you let him call all the shots in your life. That's what it means to be saved. For the Israelites Paul's concerned about, for us. It's no different. If you're working through that and you want to talk with us about it, by all means, come let me know. Come chat with me. Say, hey, I, need it. I want to understand this. I want to understand who Jesus is. Right? I want to understand what he's done so that, that I can really ask myself, do I believe this? And then will I surrender myself to his wisdom, his care, his power, his authority? I'd love to talk with you more about that. So the question, I guess, is do you believe? And something else, this is just a little side note thing, but I think it's helpful. It's really important to remember that, that God, I mean, excuse me, Paul here is not talking about a whole nation or a whole people group. He's talking specifically about individuals. And we have to take this very seriously because if we don't, we might slip into the possibility of kind of acting in sort of a racist kind of way or an overgeneralizing kind of way. We might end up saying, oh, well, all the, the Jewish people think this or do this, and the Israelites were all doing this and doing that. We might do that with other people, but, but Paul is not talking about people groups. He's talking about individual people, people he knows, people he's walked with, people he's lived with, people he's preached to. He's talking about individuals who are also Israelites. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because if he was talking about all the Israelites rejecting Jesus, what do you do with Paul? Paul was an Israelite who didn't stumble over the stumbling block 
when Jesus showed up in the road. His eyes were opened. He professed Jesus as Lord. He served him. What do you do with the 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost praying? And the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then what do you do with the 3,000 people that were added to their number? At that point, those were all Jewish people, Israelites, or possibly some converts, but really, that's a big group of Israelites. And then what do you do with the people who were added to their number in Jerusalem daily? This church was blowing up. It was growing and growing and growing, and all those people were Israelites. Some Israelites were having their eyes opened, were called, and were saved. And what do we do with the Israelites, the Jewish people that we see today who are coming to faith in Christ? This is not a general statement about all Israelites. It's a statement about individuals who happen to be Israelites. Some of them are indeed coming to faith in Christ. Let's just not forget that because I don't want us to have a broad, sweeping generalization. And we might make the same broad, sweeping generalizations about other people groups too or other belief structures. Let us not do that. Let's learn from Paul. Let's recognize and have this same agony, but let us not do that. Then there's one more thing I want us to see here. This is kind of a follow-up from last week. So this is the other side of the coin that many of you saw last week. Okay, there is an aspect here that we see right in Scripture of man's responsibility to believe. Last week we looked at God's sovereignty, God choosing, but right here in this text, and right here in what we just read in, in chapter 10, there's an aspect of man's responsibility to believe. Okay, we know God alone chooses, He opens eyes, He does that work, He initiates this thing, but Romans 10.13 that I just read says, "...everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." So if someone does not call on the name of the Lord, he will not be saved. That's a conditional statement, right? It's like Paul is saying, don't stumble over the rock. Right? Okay, well, if you stumble over the rock, whose fault was that? I told you. I pointed it out. You fell over it anyway. Right? That puts responsibility back on us, doesn't it? Yes, it does. If you don't see the rock, you're going to fall over it. It's your fault. If you don't call on the Lord, you won't be saved. That's on you. That is why God still finds fault in our rejection of him. You say, well, wait a second, this is complicated. God chooses who will be saved, but we're held responsible for the choices to believe in Christ? Yeah. How does God's choosing and our responsibility fit together? Right? How does the cross of Christ, how is it that it's foolishness to some people, and other people that see the exact same thing see it as the power of salvation? How does that work. Some rest on the rock. Others fall over it. God saves all who call on his name. Any who would want him, seek him, call on his name will not be turned away. But only those God draws will call. He's the initiator. John 6.44 says, as Jesus speaking, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then seconds later, let's not miss this, just seconds later, he says, Everyone who has listened and learned from the Father comes to me. That's John 6.45. Any of those who are listening and learning are coming. So now God opens ears so they can hear. 
God opens eyes so they can see. And when they have open ears and open eyes, they can learn from God. Look back at verses, uh, Romans 10, verses 2 through 4. He's talking about the people. Paul says, I can testify about them. He's talking about his lost Israelite friends. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God. Well, that's a good thing, right? Oh, they're really religious. They go to church all the time. They're amazing. They have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Is he calling them stupid? No, he's, he's talking about them seeing this knowledge from the Father. Verse 3, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempt to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We need to have eyes open, taught by God, so we call out to God, so that God would save us. And that's Paul's heart for his lost Friends, the point is that salvation comes by faith in Jesus Christ and not by our own effort and not by our own works. Not by our own self-righteous morality, but by what God has done on the cross. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, some see Romans 9 and they conclude that this is just really interesting stuff. This would make a good conference. We should have a Romans 9 conference, and we should talk about it and debate it. Oh, this would be great for seminary debates. Man, I should write my school papers on this. This is all very interesting. But there's not really much else to do for those who aren't resting on the rock of Christ, is there? I guess that's just it. No. No. It is interesting indeed. But there's so much more. Right? We don't want to fall into the trap of saying, well, it's just on them. Nothing, nothing I can do. Nothing we should do. We don't want to fall into the trap of saying, well, this whole group of people in my community, they all believe this. I don't like them. I wish they were. I should move. I should go somewhere else. It's hard to live here because of all those people. Nothing I can do. Right? That's not what Paul is showing us. It's not. Look at Romans 10.1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. We should follow Paul's example here. We should hope for the salvation of our lost friends and family. We should have concern for our lost friends and family. We should have concern for the lost in our community, what, a, what an example he's showing us at the very heart of God is that we should care. We shouldn't see them as our enemies or problems. We should see them as the target of our prayers and our love and our concerns. So how often are you fervently, seriously, truly praying for your lost friends and family? your co-workers, those who are stumbling over this rock, not resting on it, those who are struggling to understand who Jesus is, how often are you praying for them? By name. I mean, yeah, we, might, we, not, we have zero power to save them, but Jesus has all the power to save them. Right? So why don't we ask God if he will exercise all this power and save them, open their eyes? No, oh, but it's already predetermined. Yeah, but you didn't predetermine it, so ask God. Spurgeon has a line that says, do you believe in the elect? Yes. Well, then how do you view, I can't remember exactly how this, how do you, how do you view who's saved? And he says, I just ask God 
to show me the elect and let them be saved, and then I ask him to elect a bunch more, right? Like, just that heart, right? Do you have enough love and enough concern for your lost friends and your neighbors and those you go to school with, your family members, those you see? Do you have enough love to ask God to intervene in their life, to open their eyes so that they would see the stumbling block and find their rest and security on it rather than just stumbling right over it? Do you love them that much? It's what they need, right? So how are you doing in your prayer life for the lost? Pray that God would teach them. Pray that God would show them and pray that he would teach us. But how does God teach them? I mean, how? okay, I'm praying my face off, right? I'm just, oh, God, please, Lord. How's God going to do it? Look at 1017. We haven't read this yet this morning. It's a little further down in the chapter. We're going to get there when we get to this chapter. So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes from the message about Christ. So you pray. You ask God to intervene. And you open yourself up to possibly be the means by which he does it. You might be the means by which he is teaching the lost, helping the lost, guiding the lost, that they would hear the message of Jesus Christ. So, so while you're praying for their salvation... Lord, please save them. Why don't you also just toss in another prayer that God might provide opportunities for you to share the gospel, for you to explain and teach, to open up the word that as maybe God is opening their eyes, that God might use you as his means by which the message would be proclaimed. You might need to pray for courage. You might need to pray for opportunity. This might be difficult for you. So maybe you just pray for the opportunity to invite someone to church and, and let them hear it from all the people, they walk through the door and they meet, and then the, sings, the songs that we sing and the, the proclaimed uh, opening of the reading of the word and the prayers and the sermon, and, and then maybe they come and talk to me afterwards, or maybe they talk to somebody else. Or maybe, maybe you have an opportunity to say, let's go out to lunch afterwards and talk about what we just heard. If you're terrified to open up a conversation about the gospel itself, maybe think about inviting someone to church. And by the way, faith comes by believing that Jesus was raised from the dead, right? We're going to have this holiday in a couple of weeks. It's kind of all about Jesus being raised from the dead. What a great opportunity. I think God is opening some doors. Are you praying for lost people? And are you standing ready to share the gospel? Now, kiddos, you've done a super good job. I hope you're learning something as we go, but I want to challenge you with something. Today, I want you at some point, to talk with your parents. Talk to them about Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Say, hey, help me understand Jesus. Talk with your parents about the lost people in your life. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? Ask them to pray with you. Parents, I'm putting you on the spot here. Ask them to pray with you. Say, can we pray that God would save Grandpa so-and-so, Aunt so-and-so, my friend at school, pray with them. And kids, ask your parents would pray that you and them would have enough boldness to share the gospel so that others might too be able to sit on that big rock and rest on Jesus. I'm going to pray for you. Parents, I'm going to pray for that conversation that I really hope is going to happen today. Lord, I thank you that you do the work, that you are sovereign, that you open eyes, that you open ears. And Lord, I acknowledge and I thank you that you use us as your means. 
Lord, equip us to share your gospel well. Continually remind us of the loss, that we would have the same heart that you have, that we would pray, that we'd be like Paul in agony over our lost friends, weeping over the, the future state that they will be in while they're enjoying their life now, but one day we'll, we'll not hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but the opposite. Lord, let us be broken for the lost. And Lord, let us be bold for your gospel. We're afraid. We're cowards, and we don't want to be embarrassed, and, and we're nervous. So Lord, I'm asking that you would equip us to know your word and live it and to proclaim it. You would give us opportunities. Lord, we need some really easy softball opportunities here. We need it on a tee like T-ball. Lord, and if we swing once and hit the tee and knock the ball off, Lord, give us, give us another, put the, put the ball back on the tee. Lord, I'm just asking that we would have the opportunity to proclaim your word for the, to the people, for the people that we've been praying about who are lost, that you would, you would show us how you're working in this. And in all of this, Lord, I, I just ask that you would save souls. Thank you for those of us in here who, who do see you, who are saved. Thank you for those who you are being saved. And, and God, continue to work in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, save many, many more in our community. Please, Father. And Lord, use us to do it if you see that best fit. Make us usable as your means. Lord, that we would celebrate many baptisms, many professions of faith, and that we would see you doing a mighty thing in our community, among our people, Lord, as we seek to make Jesus known and famous. Lord, help us to stop striving in our works for righteousness and instead rest in you for your righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own, but we need your righteousness, and you give it by faith, by your grace and mercy, not by anything that we earn or work for. Help us to remember that, Lord. And for those of us who are toiling and striving, help us to relax and find our sanctuary in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.